Welcome to Practice Life, the podcast devoted to the important non-clinical issues affecting the daily practice of equine veterinary medicine. Practice Life is brought to you by the American Association of Equine Practitioners. And I'm Mike Pannell, a practice owner and veterinarian, and a longtime EAP member and your host. This podcast is sponsored by Boehringer Engelheim. As a global leader in equine health, Boehringer Engelheim's main goal is to improve equine patients' health and quality of life. Boehringer Engelheim is dedicated to providing the latest product technology for the treatment and prevention of diseases in horses. Learn more about our product portfolio and what we can offer the veterinary community by visiting buy-vetmedica.com. Hi, and welcome to AAP Practice Life. I'm Mike Connell, and today we're going to talk about hiring new staff, how we go about hiring new vets, uh, new support staff, and I am joined by a really great trio of great practice owners. Uh, Let's start west to east. We start off with uh, Dr. Alex Eastman. Hi, Alex. Hi, how are you? Good. And straddling the Rockies, Dr. Shane Baird. Good evening, Mike. And finally, over on the East Coast, just down the road from me, uh, Dr. Miranda Gosselin. Hi, Miranda. Hi, Mike. I want to hear about your practice. I want to give everybody a little bit of context. We're talking about hiring. Uh, I sort of selected to ask the three of you to join the podcast because all three of you have really growing practices. And I know you're all very tuned in to hiring great people. So, Alex, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your practice. We have a full-service referral hospital in Salinas that now has another location in Menlo Park with about 15 veterinarians that work between the two practices and a very small, small animal practice in Salinas. That's right. I forgot you had the small animal practice too. That could be a whole other podcast right there. People that balance equine and small animal. Shane, tell us about your practice. I have a uh, three-doctor all ambulatory practice in Golden, Colorado and cover a pretty significant geographic area, but growing significantly. Great. And then finally, Miranda, tell us about your practice. We have a six-doctor ambulatory, equine ambulatory practice in Millbrook, New York. And we cover, I don't know, it seems like the radius gets larger and larger, but it's supposed to be about 35 miles. Wonderful. So we're talking about, and I think the biggest challenge we have, and you talk to vets anywhere, equine, depending animal, North America, Europe, everybody's trying to find vets. You know, it seems like there's just an absolute global vet shortage. I remember when we were just coming out of the Great Recession, the AVMA was saying there's going to be a shortage of vets in 10 years. And this is when we were like an abundance of vets. And we're like, no way, no way. And demographics has proved us right. And so we do have a shortage. So let's start with you, Shane. So what, what has worked well for you to attract vets to, to a job? How do you find vets that want to come to you? Mostly my strategy has been through a lot of networking, uh, Mm -hmm. using resources, whether it's people in the industry, uh, veterinarians and or reps from companies, et cetera. It's been hugely helpful in finding leads at least. So you'll, you'll talk to your drug reps or your equipment reps and say, Hey, have you heard of anybody? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That's interesting. How about yourself, Alex? How, How do you find vets? Our number one source would be our internship program, which sort of functions as a one-year interview, which is great, but also word of mouth and um, BMG friends and drug reps and stuff. 
right. So I guess having an internship, you sort of can self-select who you want to join onto the practice. Right. Miranda, um, you just hired a new vet. We were talking before we started recording. So how are you finding uh, vets for your practice? Yeah, I think we rely pretty heavily on networking. I would say, though, that I we put out ads this year in both the AEP Career Center as well as the AVMA Career Center. I've never put an ad before in the AVMA, so that was a little bit different. But yeah, ultimately, what it really came down to was networking and the connections with other people. And you tend to get a better sense of what the person is going to be like from those right. those connections. Yeah, especially if it's somebody that really knows your practice and how you practice, they can sort of say, yeah, this would be a great fit. Or Absolutely. Yeah, I think we've all had the times like, hey, I've got somebody that uh, it probably won't work for you. So that's kind of nice to have. But support staff, I mean, that's still hard to find too. I know in my practice, um, trying to find good quality people where I live, uh, the economy's booming. And so some of the prices, some of these bigger manufacturers and other industries are just things that we can't afford to pay, that kind of pay scale. Alex, starting with you, how have you been finding support staff? Some word of mouth. I mean, support staff, probably more than anybody we advertise locally. Perhaps this pandemic has helped us because we finally are getting more applicants. But we, you know, we, it was much harder a year ago to find people. So within the horse community or just, I mean, we've used Indeed and Craigslist and stuff like that, too. Right. How about yourself, Miranda? Yeah, we we rely on Indeed. Mm-hmm. And there is an element of, again, networking, looking for people that are showing an interest in moving into veterinary medicine and in the assisting and technical world versus uh, continuing to work for a trainer or at a farm. I mean, it depends on what type of job, like for obviously for like a front office position, I think we're more likely to to look through something like Indeed than if we're looking for a technical staff member, then in that situation, it's more often than not, it's more networking based. Right. How about yourself, Shane? What What's working for you in, in uh, Colorado? Our technical staff, we're lucky in our proximity to the university, to CSU, and we can usually draw students or prospective students in and that want experience. And they may not be longer term, but it's definitely helped and Mm -hmm. we can grow them and get them coming back. Right. Do any of you use any kind of uh, bonuses with your staff if they sort of recommend somebody and if they stay on for a certain period of time that you, you know, give them a, you know, a hundred, couple hundred bucks or what have you? No, I would. I haven't (laughs) used it. Yeah. No, we've, we've introduced that a couple of years ago and because we were just talking, you know, one of you were just mentioning about networking and, you know, it's the horse community is actually pretty small. And so, and it's funny because your staff kind of knows what would work well with you. We were just talking about vets finding other vets for us. And I think that has really worked well for us is when, you know, if somebody can stay on longer than their probationary period, which we'll get to in a bit, then we sort of give them, I think $250, I think. It sort of self-selects who's right for us. Does anybody use Facebook or Instagram to promote for ads? For sure. We definitely put all of our job listings up in the Facebook and social media realm. Yeah, same for us. You know, we don't because then sometimes we have clients apply and then that gets awkward. 
awkward. If Very awkward. I don't think they'd be a good fit. So yeah. we try, we have, but we try not to use Facebook because we have so many clients on it. Yeah, that could be awkward. It's sort of out of left field. I'm curious, how have you dealt with that? Because I'm sure other people have the same situation. So it's like, we like your horse, but we don't like you. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> we like you as a client. You know, I try to stay out of that as much as, you know, to sort of have like a standard interview procedure with the normal people who would do the interviewing and shadow days. And then if it doesn't seem like a good fit, have it that way. Right. We've had the occasional problem of like a client's child who's wanted a job and sometimes that's touchy. Luckily, the one that really didn't work, the parents were pretty understanding about the whole thing. But So you just brought up your interview process. So Alex, maybe you can flesh out what your interview process is because I think that's one area where as vets, we all struggle of how to get a good interview process to sort of compare apples to apples. So we'll sort of go around the table, but let's start with you, Alex. I start with a resume and then sort of select from there and do a phone interview and then have sort of a, if they get past the phone interview, then kind of a shadow day. And we have some people identified within the practice who take that on. And there's usually a little bit of math and a little bit of writing involved because we've been burned on those things too. So That's interesting. Tell us about that because I, I, have, I haven't heard about that before. Tim Ellis from Mid-River's Equine. Has, has, he has a very extensive written packet for his interview process, but he shared it with me. And there's actually some basic math questions on it and like the parts of a horse. And then a couple questions that are written, have written answers about why are you interested in just fluff questions, but it's just to see if you can read what they write and that they can do some basic math and math and that they have, you know, a basic sense of the parts of the horse. I mean, it doesn't have to be every single thing, but it has actually kind of worked well because we had some applicants that were very, very nice, but but they would transpose numbers or they couldn't, you know, just things like that that really were deal killers. So Yeah, especially when you're pulling up medications. Yeah. How about yourself, Shane? What's your process like? Uh, I would say very similar to Alex's. We utilizing Skype or Zoom, whatever, definitely helps to in that early process after the resumes then being able to just get down to that one-on-one -on -one time get them in the trucks get them riding around with us and how do they fit in the team all right miranda about yourself if we're talking about support staff i actually outsource the initial interview process uh to a fantastic member of oculus and she like takes care of the initial interviews and then she gives me a short list and then I communicate with that person over Zoom and then they come in for an interview, a working interview. And, and it's really important that as many people, we don't have a lot of people in our practice, but as many people as possible can meet that person so that we all, I, I want to hear as many opinions as possible. As, as possible about what people think about the interviewee. Because if there's any red flags and if people don't want to work with this person, I, I want to know that. Yeah, we do very similar to all that you do. One of the things I learned a few years ago is that we'd get uh, people, this is mainly with support staff who are from the horse industry, like they were in grooms for a show barn, a hunter jumper barn. 
And we realized that even though they had worked with maybe Grand Prix horses, they didn't have really good horsemanship with a variety of horses. And so we'd have people that, you know, when you got a horse that was stubborn and didn't know how to pick up a feet or they didn't know how to do it. And it's sort of like what Alex was saying in terms of like seeing if they can do basic math. I want to see if they can actually run with a horse, pick up feet, all four feet, do things because we have been burned before. You know, you look at the resume, you're like, oh, they, they've got it made. And then you've got a stubborn horse or an ordinary horse, you know, which, which we will get into that practice because they're afraid or, and they're new and oof, lost it. So, And then the other thing is, too, you know, since the COVID, many of us have changed from phone interviews to Zoom or Skype interviews. Have you noticed a difference at all with that? Shane, have you, I think you brought that up that you do the Zoom and, and Skype interviews. It definitely goes, it's more difficult for the interviewee. Mm -hmm. There's a little more discomfort, just it's closer to face-to-face -face. and that quick response, it's more like a real face-to-face -face interview where you can start reading mm -hmm. emotional response and how do they handle that stress? It's almost an advantage, isn't it? I think so as an, as a interviewer. Yeah. Cause you sort of see how are they going to deal, especially with a veterinarian with a, um, a client that's really, you know, wanting answers right now. Yep. How do they respond to this pressure situation? So let's say you got somebody, things are looking good. One of those hmm, difficult areas are references and background checks. So Miranda, I mean, what, what do you do with references and, and background checks? Yeah, we definitely check out at least two. You know, we want to make sure that obviously a person's not a serial killer. But I would say that more often than not, I still don't think you're going to get like a really accurate portrayal of this person. I mean, clearly they're selecting the person who's going to say the best stuff about them. So we've hired people in the past. The references said they were amazing, and then they turned out to be subpar. So I think it's the best you can do. Yeah, absolutely. How about yourself, Alex? We call selected ones. Um, I actually had a good situation where I had a drug rep suggest say like, are you sure? Did you call all the references? <laughs> and so That's I nice. then tracked down an old employer that wasn't listed on the reference and said, so just curious. And he said, I wish I could tell you everything that I want to tell you, but I can't. That's enough. Said, well, that was plenty. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's amazing how people will, you know, yes, you know, they're selecting people, but I remember interviewing one person one, this is what taught me the biggest lesson was we finally hired the person, and then I found out that she had never actually worked for this person, even though her resume said that, and that was a reference. You're like, that's, that's gutsy. Any pearls of wisdom with yourself, Shane, in terms of references or background checks? No, I think Alex kind of touched on it. We're looking down deeper into the resume, or yeah, the resume, and past employers. Is there someone that you know, like you said, the horse world's a small world, and if there is... Can you get a little bit more information? Yeah, that's always tricky because, you, you know, you, somebody's applying for a job, but they don't want anybody else to know. Right, right. And, and then you're like, ah, I want to, you know, so how many degrees of separation can, I, <laughs> can we find to contact somebody? So it is a bit dicey. You want to respect their privacy. Sure. So I find that most important, like when you're looking at vet applicants. I called Alex earlier this year because I was looking at an applicant and and I noticed that this person had had done an internship at Alex's practice. And so I was like, hey, tell me about this person. I mean, she wasn't listed as a reference, but I think that you have to make those connections because it's such a small profession. Yep. 
And I think what's difficult with references, as, as good as our network is to say, hey, there's a vet available or somebody spent some time with me, you might be interested. It, it's, you know, you really have to know another vet. And I, because I remember once I, there was a, a colleague of ours recommended that this person did an internship. Oh my God, one of my best interns ever. And when she came for an interview, it was like, are we talking the same people? Like, like this is like so opposite. And, and then I realized that the way his practice worked and operated and the way ours was totally different. And so I could see why this perfect was so spot on for them. But for our practice would just be a fish out of water. We have to be careful of our references. And I learned that because of that situation that not everybody knows how we practice. Well, it's, it's a lot like dating, right? You know, it's like not everybody is a good fit for every practice. And yeah, Very true. So we're at the point now and everybody's, you know, great references, great working interviews, everybody likes them. And we got to talk about wages. So how do we, how do you determine, let's start with veterinary wages and then we'll go to support staff. So um, Miranda, how, how are you determining vet wages? Oh, he gave me the hard question. <laughs> Uh, of course. <laughs> and then I'll compound it by uh, how do you pay them when it's based on experience? It's one thing when they're out of an internship. Whatever you say, I'm going to say that we start higher. <laughs> <laughs> so not fair. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess there is a little bit of like call around and talk to people and find out what, you know, keep try to keep up with the Joneses a little bit. I care about clearly not insulting people. I know in most cases, what they've come from. But I think like in my last situation, I wasn't hiring a new veterinarian. And so this was a new experience to me. It was like, okay, how, how do I start this new vet out to be successful, but also recognize that in her first year of practice, she may not be as profitable as I would like, right? So you start to look for creative ways like we pay a salary. We don't do a commission-based compensation. So what I started thinking about is like, okay, how about a signing bonus? Like I, I just, these are things that you have to start thinking out of the box because you want to draw attention and, and, and give props to this person who has been in practice for as long as she has. But you also want to be smart about how you run your practice. Right. So I don't know. Does that answer your question it's hard because i mean i was somebody was asking me about uh, hiring a vet in the area where i'm at and i looked at the uh, vet wanted ads for the ontario veterinary medical association and it's prim primarily small animal but you're competing with that and i would say every ad and it was they're mainly from corporate groups was 10 fifteen thousand dollar signing bonus and it was just a list. And I mean, there are literally dozens. And I was thinking this one chain, if they hired every vet they want to, is probably going to be paying about a half a million dollars in signing bonuses. And it's like, wow. I mean, so it made, it made me think that, you know, if everybody's offering that, it almost takes that out of the equation. And that is there's got to be something else for your practice that they want. You know, yes, the signing bonus is great, but there's, it's kind of, I kept on thinking like when you get a new gym in town, it's like, hey, new member is free for six months or something like that. But something's got to be there to make you stay a lot longer. So yeah, it's tricky. How about yourself, Alex? How do, how do you determine wages? It's really case dependent. I mean, we, we do pay our vets basically on commission um, because I can't figure out another way to have this great flexible arrangement where you can work two days a week or three days a week or five days a week. And so the only way 
until we launch your new system, Mike, is to uh, to pay them on commission. And so for the first year, we generally do a straight salary, and I try to kind of guess overpaying for the first six months and underpaying for the second six months or something like that. And then we kind of keep playing with the salary depending on how it's going. We hired another vet who was pregnant and needing to make a change pretty quickly. And we, I just said, okay, I'll guarantee you this salary for the first year, including your maternity leave and everything, just knowing that you know she needed that security. So it just depends on, on the situation and how quickly I think they can hit the ground running. So Shane, how are you, how are you determining wages for your uh, vets? Working on a salary basis and then just determining that salary. I think I'd agree with what everyone else has said, just trying to work through what are the numbers out there? Like Miranda said, just trying to keep up with Joneses. What does the AVMA survey look like? Where do we want to land? And making sure that it still falls in at least where predicted production will be. I mean, that's always throwing darts, right? I kind of think you're going to lose money the first year, break even the second year, and then by the third year, it, it makes it worthwhile. So yeah, that's, it's hard because, I mean, it's, so much of what we do is based on relationships. It's not like you can be a small animal clinic and just say, Dr. So-and-so is going to see you in, in that exam room. I mean, it's it's a lot of courting with potential clients before they take us on. You know, what about uh, support staff? So Miranda, we'll start with you. Like if you're, you know, any of your support staff, how are you determining wages for that? So... We have a definite range and we have a tendency to bring people on at the lower end of the range um, with the intention to have a review in six months where they could get a raise at that review period. And then, you know, if they're hitting it out of the park, we'll we'll give them a a pretty solid raise at six months and then again at a year uh, because we have been flat footed in years past and we haven't given raises as quickly as we needed to, and we lost people because of that. So I think that uh, it's just, it's really important to just be aggressive with that. And I we've made right. a decision. Yeah. We don't have a lot of support staff. And so I feel like we've made a decision to invest in our people because we want them to stay on with us. They're such an important part of our team. We want them to know that we value that. So yeah. That's so true. I mean, we've just been going through it's this time of year, some wage reviews, and you look at some people, and you're like, wow, that's might be a lot. But then you think, what it would it take to replace yeah. them? And what value do they add? And then you're like, yeah, they're, that's good. Yeah. I mean, when you think about one person and they're like doing the work of a person and a half, like clearly you need to be aggressive with giving that person. How about yourself, Shane? Agreed. I mean, we've got a range that we live in, and then we try... We'll do that six-month review and then be ready to go aggressively after them if they are someone long-term. Just trying to stabilize the staff and realizing that retraining process is expensive. And just, yeah, just the the disruption with staff. I think it just undermines everybody else's performance, so... How about yourself, Alex? I'm interested in you because you've, and correct me if I'm wrong, you have two locations are, I mean, economically are the same, like would rents be the same in the two locations? I mean, you know, that's part of the challenge is, you know, if you've got one location and rents, you know, 10% cheaper at another place, you pay the same wages to both receptionists type thing? You know, we, we do 
it's funny because it's a big bone of contention among the people who work in Salinas. Um, but I don't think they have any idea how much more it costs to live in Menlo Park than it does in Salinas. And so, I mean, and it's really only like maybe a dollar more, you know, we're talking, but we definitely have to start people a little higher up there. And there's just sort of nothing, you know, we wouldn't get any applicants otherwise, but, but it doesn't shake out to be all that different. Yeah, I find, you know, I think sort of echoing what Miranda's saying, I think when we, with support staff, I guess it's like vets too, it's like you really do get what you pay for. There's another practice you know, we all know, and I remember meeting a new person in the, for a receptionist, and they're paying about $2 more an hour than some neighboring practices. But when I met her and, and how good she was, I was like, oh yeah, that's like, yeah, she is worth the $2, if not more, like, yeah, like, wow, there's a, there's a gap. So it's worth it. So finally, I just, I'm really curious because I think this is a, a big area where a lot of vet practices were probably not as diligent as we'd like to be. And that's how do we train our people? So Alex, I mean, how do you train your new vets? You bring on new vets, you know, if you come from an internship, they're probably already trained, but let's say you had to bring on somebody brand new that's new to your system. How do you, how do you bring them on? Um, we try to get them. I mean, I'm I'm big into community and the support of having you know specialists and more senior veterinarians around, and so I try to have them ride with the vets in the practice for a while, introduce them to clients that way. Specifically, riding with vets that are working in the areas that they're going to be working in, and then kind of assign a mentor to them so that. They have somebody specific to check in. I mean, they can check in with anybody, but somebody who's specifically checking in with them regularly right? and just, you know, even who's glancing over their notes and, and paying attention to what clients are telling the receptionist and stuff like that. Right. And Shane, how about yourself? In a small practice like ours, it falls to me as the mentor. And so in a purely ambulatory, it is difficult. But being able, being available, making sure that I'm there, checking in regularly, whether it's do I need to make time in my schedule to join someone on a call or on a particular case, or is it just I need to sit down and talk to them? So it's just being there as the support and the mentor. Yeah. And Miranda, how about yourselves? Yeah, I think that's that's when we've been successful, right? When we have, when either a, one veterinarian has taken that person kind of under their wing and has ridden with them for, I don't know, a couple of months, or in a situation where you have a more seasoned vet, still like that support knowing that if you ever have a case or a client or any call that you need or would benefit from having another vet there just to nod and be part of the whole show. We're absolutely on board with doing any of those things. I think a real big process is understanding the, the invoicing, you know, understanding the practice management software. So I'm always willing to sit down and go through how they did their billing because I, you know, obviously that benefits me if they get it right. Yeah. So do you follow their billing for a number of weeks or months after they start? Yeah, I do. I mean, I we we try to do regular challenges where we'll sit down with all of the vets and say, "Okay, this is what you saw, this is what you did." And then we'll it's just a process of, or an exercise where everybody then talks about how they would bill for that. 
but we probably don't do it as often as we should. Yeah, I was just thinking that when you said that, I was like, yeah, we used to do that, but when's the last time? I'm like, oh yeah. So if any of our vets are, are listening, it's like probably fall. <laughs> <laughs> do you have anybody that checks your billing regularly? Yeah, randomly. My comment would be having trying to put a senior veterinary technician in the truck so that that individual yeah. is watching over their shoulder day in and day out and help them to learn the ropes and the management software. And also just here in Colorado, not getting lost. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I have found with, with vets, to me, if I was going to say, what was one of the factors that led to their success over other things? is spending the time to introduce them to the clients and understand the idiosyncrasies of our clients. Because what I've learned is when the brand new vet shows up and they're like, who are you for an emergency? It pretty well puts the vet on the on their back foot. Like it's like, it's such an uphill struggle as opposed to if you spent time and you introduce them to, you know, like you're maybe your bigger barns and your top trainers, you know, barn managers to say, here's Dr. So-and-so brand new with the practice. And, and then when they come for the emergency, they're like, oh yeah, we met before. Uh, one of our clients taught me that. And I was like, yeah, from now on, that's what we're always doing. I think it also helped to say, if you don't have anything in your schedule to the new vet, you can follow me, you can ride with me, you can follow so-and-so is going to this call, it'll be pretty interesting. And that's another way of just getting them out there and getting that FaceTime, which I think is so valuable. And so exactly so that they're not on the defensive the first time they go out there for an emergency call and the client doesn't recognize them. Yeah, for sure. So finally, I mean, do you do anything different for your support staff? Or you're probably like us and you have great intentions and it's like, here's the pool, dive in. <laughs> for us, there's a lot of overlap of what the responsibilities are for the team. So I'm always hopeful that that new person will be able to congregate and interact with the other people in the team and that will, there will be positive interactions where they gain something productive. But that doesn't always happen. Right. How about yourself, Shane? The support staff part is I try and get them in my truck so I can get them along in my direction. But then knowing that every veterinarian practice is a little bit different, but at least that way we've got some shiftability, if you will, between trucks and personnel. Sure. And uh, how about Alex? What do you do for a training program for your support staff? You know, that might be the only thing we do really well. <laughs> that we, um, <laughs> the only thing? I'm, uh, I'm sure Maybe. not. We put them with a designated tech who does the training and they ride with them for two or three months. And we had one woman who did a great job down to what color pen to use, you know, very detailed and um, she's tired of training people. So, um, but another technician took up the reins. And so it, they have a pretty structured program. And then there's sort of incentives for cross training because that kind of covers most of the truck stuff. And then if they can get cross trained to do treatments and stuff in the hospital, then at, at a certain point, they get a bonus for being checked off on, on all, everything. So that's wonderful. So, I mean, we've pretty well have gone through, you know, finding and, and attracting, interviewing and bringing them on board. Is anything we missed? Anybody have a pearl of wisdom that they wish everybody knew when it comes to hiring somebody else? Miranda, you look like you have something right in the top of your head. Well, I was just thinking about, Mike, you always, you always talked about how you should hire slow and fire fast 
And I mean, sometimes it's hard, right? Because you're in a situation where it's like you're desperate for a veterinarian or you're desperate for a support staff member and you think, hey, this person's just, I think this person's going to be great. But I think also there's something to be said for trusting your gut. You know, like sometimes something feels perfect and the person just seems like they were meant to be part of your team. And if it's not there... I can't say that I'm a big proponent of pushing it. Yeah. So that's my thought. Because, I I mean, I know how hard we've worked to have the team that we have and the culture that we have. And the moment we sacrifice that just to get somebody in a spot. Creates friction. I mean, it it could blow up the whole situation. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. It's really that bad apple that spoils everything. How about yourself, Shane? Any final words of advice or... One of the things that really helped my process just in introduction training, the whole movement through was actually sitting down and spending the time developing job descriptions for every position mm. within the business. So it definitely helped and gave everyone a little bit of clarity. Yeah. I think that's such an important part of training. If you don't know where your what your boundaries are, I think we all would struggle. Alex, last words with you. What are your pearls of wisdom that you'd love to share? Um, you know, I don't really have. I think just dovetailing on what Miranda said, you know, we we hire for personality above all else. And, you know, we obviously can't be incompetent, but we feel like we can teach people what they need to know, but we can't make them fit in our culture. And so. Yeah, wonderful. Well, I'd like to really thank the three of you. I think there's been some uh, great perspective, and I know um, AAP members listening to this will really value some of the words of wisdom from people who are actually doing the job in practice and, and, and trying to capture anything. So thank you all very much. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Boringer Engelheim. As a global leader in equine health, Boringer Engelheim's main goal is to improve equine patients' health and quality of life. Boehringer Engelheim is dedicated to providing the latest product technology for the treatment and prevention of diseases in horses. Learn more about our product portfolio and what we can offer the veterinary community by visiting buy-vetmedica.com. For more resources to help you in daily practice, please visit the AAP's website at aaep.org.